Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Kenneth Borgelsen. I'm a social anthropologist based in Oslo and one of the leaders of the Norwegian Network for Asian Studies. On the 21st of August this year, a press release went out announcing the closing down of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, effective from 31st December the same year. With that, 55 years of institutionalized Nordic collaboration will come to an end. This is a great loss to all of us in the Nordic region working on Asia, not least because the reasons why NIAS was founded back in the 60s remain equally true today. Asia plays an increasingly important role in our lives in the Nordic region as elsewhere, but is poorly understood. One reason is because across the Nordic region, the field of Asian studies has quite a marginal status and is fragmented across various disciplines and research environments. So in this episode, we bid goodbye to NIAS, take stock of its achievements over more than half a century, and also try to assess its legacy. To help me do this, I'm joined by a series of guests with a close and long connection to NIAS. With me are three former directors, Jörn Delman, Gaia Helgesen, and Duncan McCargo. With me also, NIAS librarian Ingeril Blomqvist and editor-in-chief of NIAS Press, Gerald Jackson. Now, NIAS was established in 1968 as the world's first regional Asian studies institute, with core funding from the Nordic Council of Ministers. From the outset, NIAS pursued two main missions. One was undertaking and disseminating research on Asia, and also providing support for Nordic Asia research environments. Jan Delman, you served as the director of NIAS for a period of seven years in the early 2000s. At that time, NIAS had been around for more than 30 years. What kind of institution was NIAS at this time? I think in many ways it was what it, it was when it closed this year. So it was an institution that had put itself at the center of Asian studies in the Nordic countries. We had a number of researchers ourselves so it was a research institute but it was also a service institute in uh, the sense that it provided services of different kinds to uh, the nordic countries i realized very quickly after i started that already at that time it had a profound impact on asian studies you could point to almost any asia researcher in the nordic countries at that time and this person would have been around nias one way or the other and many of them many times so in that sense, it was very clear that NIAS had had a, an impact. I think I was recruited because there had been a, a turbulent period before the NIAS board had hired a director who left immediately after he, he had been employed. And um, I was recruited as far as they told me, mainly for my management experience and only secondarily for my research experience, which at that time was not that great, I would say. Although I had a PhD, I'd done some research, but I came from the private sector. So I sent from the interview that my main task was actually to build on this experience, build on the network we had in order to be clear, to identify what is NIAS, what does NIAS have to do, how do we maintain what is called Nordic nude or Nordic usefulness in the work we are doing. So from that perspective, you could say that I had to, to bring my management experience into play in order to structure NIAS and also focus on what should be the strategy of the future. But that being said, I think NIAS had done a lot of good things. So the main thing was really to formulate what we are doing and then uh, focus on, on doing it better, you could say, of course. But we always want to be better. It's not that it was bad in the past, but um, more focus maybe and uh, also branding NIAS in, in a new way so that it would still, in the context of that time, be seen as a critical hub in Asian studies in the Nordic countries. 
But your time was also a time of quite dramatic changes for the institution. I mean, NIAS went from being a fully independent institution to becoming more embedded into the University of Copenhagen. And also the Nordic ownership or the partnership model was being transformed. Um, did, did this change NIAS to any significant extent? Well, it did uh, because it was very clear that our... Uh sponsors in the Nordic Council of Ministers, they wanted to revisit the number of Nordic institutions they had at that time. And it was very clear to, to me that eventually they wanted to leave this field because they would be more interested from a political perspective to invest in projects rather than institutions with a fixed budget over many, many years. So... Um, from our discussions internally at NIAS and with the, the Nordic Network. And also I became a member of the board of the Nordic Center Fudan at that time as director of NIAS. I realized that there could be a different kind of network. In the past, there had been a network, but it was not structured. It was not committed in any way. But building on the experience of the Nordic Center Fudan, uh, we, we, we started developing the idea that we could build a Nordic NIAS council where Nordic universities and research institutes with interest in Asia, they would join NIAS, uh, but also commit themselves to provide some funding every year. And I think we set the funding at around 50,000 Danish kroner at that time uh, from universities and 35,000 kroner from, from uh, research institutes. And altogether, after I had traveled around to many of these universities in the Nordic countries, spoken to a lot of rectors, getting access to them through Asia researchers at the universities, we managed to bring together a consortium of about 25 Nordic universities and research institutes who then committed themselves through an agreement to join the network and to provide this funding. And also we set up a new governance structure in the sense that we had a board, uh, but it was agreed that in the in the future, the board would be appointed by the Nordic NIAS Council, which would have one annual meeting. And this has worked, I think, more or less ever since. I think we're more or less the same number of members as far as I'm informed. So it proved to be a good model and actually demonstrated to the Nordic Council ministers that there was another way of demonstrating Nordic nudity or Nordic usefulness, which they hadn't seen from any of the other Nordic institutions at that time. So actually, we were probably the institution that could best demonstrate uh, Nordic nudity through the way we had uh, constructed ourselves. Then the next step was to, um, to get embedded into the University of Copenhagen. We clearly saw this Nordic NIAS Council as a counterweight of being you know, sucked into a university bureaucracy and eventually um, cut down to size, you could say, uh, losing our independence, losing our mandate. So actually, we managed to negotiate with the University of Copenhagen that NIAS would continue as an independent institution. And we were written into the statute, a new statute that was developed at that time for Danish universities, also University of Copenhagen. We had a special paragraph saying that we were would remain an independent institution. Then for practical purposes, uh, we, we were embedded into the Faculty of Social Sciences. That was a decision by NIAS itself. Did we want to be in humanities or social sciences? The decision was social sciences. And I became a, a member of the leadership group at the Faculty of Social Sciences. But I would say the time I was there, the setup, this governance model, you could call it, that we had developed, actually worked very well, um, and the relationship with uh, the Faculty of Social Sciences was in many ways very relaxed. What we primarily got from them was financial support, uh, sorry, financial management support and IT support, which was good because at that time we needed that, you could say. So it worked very well. I'm, I'm sure Guy Hellison will tell more about this and how it changed during his tenure, but uh, for a startup, of this process for the embedment, it worked well. And for our relationship with Nordic Council of Ministers, I think it also worked well. And actually, it was one of the reasons why it has been possible to maintain core funding continuously until now from the Nordic Council of Ministers, because for sure they wanted to get rid of the institutions and tell the universities who took ownership of the, the institutions that they should also provide the financing. 
Yes, could, could I just ask you to elaborate a little bit on this? You've mentioned the Nordic Council of Ministers now quite a few times. Um, just briefly, what kind of relationship did NIAS have with the Council of Ministers? I mean, I think we can be open about it up front and say that a key reason why NIAS is now closing down is a lack of uh, funding. But but these financial challenges are not entirely new. They've been they've been around for quite a long time, also stretching back to to your days as director. That's correct. So effectively, the mandate of, of NIAS originally was formulated by the Nordic Council of Ministers. And for those who don't know, the Nordic Council of Ministers is a Nordic organization that in some ways resembles uh, the European Commission. On top of that, we also have a parliamentary gathering in the Nordic countries called the Nordic Council, but they didn't have any influence on us. So our relationship was with the, the um, executive arm of this partnership between the Nordic countries, the Nordic Council of Ministers, and we were in their research and education uh, department. So, I mean, at, a, at the personal level, we had a very good relationship with them. Uh, so there were no problems there. We helped them in different ways. And I know that during Gaia Hillison's tenure, they, they worked even closer with the Nordic Council of Ministers. We had a budget line. And of course, our focus was on the size of that budget line. So every year we had to meet and discuss this issue, how much money could we get based on a report on our activities, and once in a while also an evaluation. And, and we had continuous good evaluations from the external panels. So uh, there were no problem there. Basically, it was a working relation with mutual respect, and uh, we, we didn't have the, the feeling that, it, that we were sort of being, being run by the Nordic Council of Ministers. They were completely supportive of, of what we were doing, and they're also interested in seeing us doing more for the Nordic, for the Nordic environment, the Nordic uh, family, you could say. So we also did consulting for some of the Nordic organizations during the, the period, and this way we got closer into the Nordic situation, you could say, and, and the, the Nordic institutions. We also worked a lot with the other Nordic institutes because they had to go through the same period, the same uh, um, transformation as, as uh, we had during this period. So we also had a lot of contact with them. So I'd say when, when I, I stopped, I, I felt that the uh, the relationship was very good, but we had the challenge of declining funding. As I mentioned in the beginning, a uh, key mission for NIAS has been to provide support for Nordic Asia research environments. This support has come in many different forms, too many to mention them all here. But when I speak to colleagues across the Nordic region, especially, I think, those who work on East Asia, there's one thing they always bring up as probably the key thing with NIAS, the online collection and e-resources. Um, Inge Lille-Blomqvist, you've been the, the NIAS librarian for as long as I can remember. I think when, when I first uh, went into NIAS more than 20 years ago, yours was, uh, was I think, the, the first face I, I encountered on, on that day. Um, what what are the key online resources that member institutions have been able to access via NIAS? We have built an information portal for the Nordic community that we call the Asia Portal Info, where we collect information resources for Asian studies, mainly for modern and contemporary Asia, as is NIAS' focus. And here we present news and events from the region. We have the Nordic Asia podcast series. We have a blog site that is Asia-focused, and we have also the Asia in Focus journal, which publishes articles by MA and PhD students in, within Asian studies, and it's now maintained by Lund University. But the key online resources, the most important part of uh, the Asia portal is the collection of e-resources, as you mentioned, databases, mainly for modern and contemporary studies of modern and contemporary Asia. And we have over 400 e-resources in the collection covering all of Asia, and the majority of them are freely available for anyone. But we have also 35 or some, like 35 paid databases, which we can only give access to, to our Nordic member institution in the NNC. And these are large databases with academic publications, articles, books, theses, and dissertations but also legal and statistical information and newspapers and newspaper archives from, from Asia. We have databases in English and general databases for Asia. 
But our strongest part, the large uh, collection, is databases from China, from Taiwan, from Japan, and Korea in Chinese, Japanese, and Korean. So this is a unique collection of databases. And why is this service important? Well, the number of users in each individual institution in the Nordic region is very small. And these databases are quite expensive. So it's quite difficult for the individual institutions to subscribe to this. So it makes a lot of sense to work on a Nordic level for, for to create access to these resources. And NIAS, with our Nordic funding and with our mandate to support Asian studies, we have been in an ideal position to do this. And we get a lot of benefits from this because working together as a consortium with NIAS as license taker, we can get large price reductions. And we also receive support over the years from Japan Foundation, Korea Foundation, from the National Central Library of Taiwan, which has provided Taiwan resources, Taiwanese resources for us, Jiangtingwo Foundation, the Nordic European Center for Chinese Studies, or Fudan European Center for, for Chinese Studies, um, while they were at NIAS, also all provided support for these resources collections, recognizing the importance of them for the Nordic researchers and students. And in all this has meant that we can have give access to a whole collection of crucial resources for research on modern and contemporary Asia to both universities and research institutions. So smaller and larger institutions at a very low cost. And it's a unique collection. It's, it's us that have been able to provide it. And I should also say that we cooperate with librarians in all the member institutions for this. So it's a cooperative network also. I, I distinctly remember at some point, um, not too long ago, when, when discussions about the possible closure of NIES was doing the rounds, that uh, one of my colleagues in Oslo from China Studies loudly complained uh, at some time that the uh, that no one will take you seriously as a China researcher if you don't have access to these resources. Is this an assessment that, that you share? Well, I'm not a researcher myself, of course, but I've been working as a librarian providing access to, to the information that, that re researchers on Asian studies need now for so many years. And I would say, yes, it is crucial for any researcher on China or Japan or Korea, particularly, to have access to these resources because you get updated, continuously updated information to large uh, resources of academic research publications, to statistical and legal information, and to newspaper archives. What you need to keep updated and to get the information you need for not just your own research projects, but also analysis and reports to other authorities and for teaching for your students you know so it's it is very important to have access to these yeah. i i know there's a real concern among among many colleagues i speak to in the nordic region about the loss of access to these resources is anything being done now to ensure that there'll also be access to at least some of these resources when life continues after the closure of nias Yes, we have been in discussions for a long time now with our colleagues in the State Library of Berlin, and we're expecting to sign an agreement with them within short. Uh, it will be between NIAS and the State Library and the Cross-Asia platform that they have, and that is for them to continue to provide access to a number of these e-resources that NIAS has provided um, now for many years for our Nordic member institutions. Um, but because NIAS can no longer provide and to a large extent pay for this service, the cost will be substantially higher for the participating institutions uh, because they have to pay for the whole cost and for the licenses. So it will be more expensive and it's not for sure that we can have the whole collection uh, to provide the whole, all the databases anymore. But I would say that joining a consortium and working via one library and one such experienced library, and professional one as the, the, the state library, uh, you can substantially reduce the costs and, and enable access to, to more resources than you could if, as an individual institution signing up for these licenses. 
So our aim has been to enable uh, continued access to these vital resources for the member institutions and for Nordic and Baltic institutions in general. And um, with the State Library in Berlin uh, and Cross Asia, they will get a very professional and experienced and reliable service. So we are very happy to, to have this, uh, to be able to offer this solution for the Nordic institutions now that NIAS is closing down. Let's return to the role of former directors we have with us. Um, Gaia Hilgesen, you took over from Jörn in 2008 and you remained on as a director for a full decade um, until 2018. I know that during your time as director, relations with the Nordic Council of Ministers worked out relatively well, but in, in what ways more specifically? Well, I would uh, <laughs> stress it. It worked well, uh, very well. Uh, but uh, economically, we, of course, uh, have had problems all the time. But uh, the reason why it worked well, in my view, is that we found common interests, um, what they could do for us, of course, but also what we could do for them. So we delivered reports regarding Asian affairs. We could cover uh, any country in Asia, not with the staff, at NIAS, but with our Nordic community. We took part in Asian-related Nordic seminars organized by the Nordic Council of Ministers as their representative. In some sense, and very unofficially, we acted as their think tank on Asia. And we used our pretty close relationship with this Sinfrom Asia important intergovernmental organization to open doors in Asia. We were not a small little institution from Copenhagen. We were representing five Nordic countries. That was very impressive. One of the key activities of NIAS has always been the, the annual Nordic Asia conference that has rotated between the countries and also between um, the member institutions. Uh, this year it was in Bergen in collaboration with uh, our uh, Norwegian Network for Asian Studies. This is an event I think that will be genuinely missed as we look ahead to life after NIAS. Looking back also in your days, how significant has this conference been when it comes to building this Nordic community? Yeah, I agree. It was probably one of our most significant events and uh, annually. Useful for Asia scholars and students at all member universities in the Nordic region and for building a real Nordic network or, as you uh, phrase it, uh, a community, which is important because it makes us strong together, working together, easily contacting each other because we have been together on a yearly basis. We could just call or write, can we do this together? So in that sense, it was a flagship activity at NIAS. Not the only one, but a very important one. When we did a bit of preparation for this episode and we discussed what some of, some of the highlights from NIAS's history, I think you, you mentioned to me that we needed to speak also about the, the Fudan European Center for China Studies that came to NIAS in your time. How significant was that for, I mean, for NIAS, of course, but also for Nordic research on China and collaborations with China? Talking about flagships, since we have very little time, I would also like to mention NIAS Press. Uh, you will talk with the editor soon as a flagship. But the Food and European Center became then the third flagship. And it was certainly important for NIAS and for Copenhagen University, as I know it is for University of Oslo at this point, to have an almost permanent Chinese staff representative over several years from the prestigious Fudan University in Shanghai. During my years in the leadership position, I experienced that not only Nordic China scholars, but even more so scholars in other fields who needed support in their work on or with China, they appreciated very much that they could contact our Chinese representative 
political scientist, Jishun Rong Liu, now in Oslo, and, and get support and help and understanding from him. This said, people from outside academia, like representatives from business communities and industries, also got support and assistance from our Food and Center, not only for contact to the university in Shanghai, but in principle for contacts to any institution or company in China. A flagship, Gaia Helgeson called the NIAS Press. Uh, Gerald Jackson is the editor-in-chief of NIAS Press and recently celebrated his 30th anniversary. On that occasion, a blog post saluted Gerald and wrote that, and now I quote from this blog post, when in January 1993, a bearded New Zealander walked through the doors of NIAS at Leipzgade. No one could have imagined that publishing history was about to be made. And I can vouch for the fact that here, 30 years later, the beard is still very much where it's supposed to be. Gerald, what was the idea behind NIAS Press? I mean, a press fully dedicated to publishing in all areas of Asian studies. Yes, um, but not all regions, if I'm honest. The Middle East didn't get much look in, but East, Southeast, and to some extent South Asia, yes, very much the focus there. The thing was that publishing had been going on at NIAS or the Institute from 1969, and it was a part-time research activity. So the idea when I was hired was to actually professionalize it, to actually expand it greatly, to bring in new money, and not least to give Nordic researchers, Nordic authors, an international audience. That we actually succeeded. And by the way, we also, that way we ended up giving NIAS itself a global profile it didn't previously have. I would say, though, that that was what, at that stage, it was just the NIAS publication program. NIAS Press itself was only launched in 2002. What would you say are some of the highlights that have come out of NIAS Press? And I know this is an unfair question, I mean, to, to ask you to choose between so many titles that are in the back catalogue. But looking back, are there particular books or particular publications that you feel have made a special impact or have otherwise been especially significant? Yeah, that is a difficult question because whatever I answer, I could upset somebody. <laughs> um, <laughs> the point is there are hundreds of books that were produced over the years and many of them are similar. I mean, they all got their own research areas, but they all follow a similar structure and everything of how a book is made. But there's two points I'd make. One is that quite a lot of our authors were newcomers to authorship. So they actually learnt to become authors getting their first book published at Nears Press. So that was a great joy, and that's something I would say sticks in my mind a lot, all the different people whose careers we started. In fact, Stein Turnison, who you, you would know, he once commented that when he looked around the Nordic region, most of the people in some way or another had been touched by Nias and quite a few via the press. But that said, what there were also were a few crazy projects. And these probably stick in my mind most. I mean, the first one was back in 99, 2000, when Robert Cribb did his atlas, historical atlas of Indonesia, which was, you know, hundreds of maps, trying to get them all together. That was a nightmare. But at the end of it, you know, it was brilliant. It sold 3,000 copies in Parkback. And then in, I think it was 2013, 14, we did, because Burma, Myanmar, was becoming so hot and there was nothing, there was no real information out there, we did, I guess you'd say, a dummy's guide to Burma. And again, it was trying to get all these different scholars pulled together a whole lot of different material and make it coherent. Huge project, great fun. And at the end of it, we became TripAdvisor's number one book on the country. So, you know, success is nice. And lastly, I'd say the following year, we started this 
totally crazy project on commemorating the 70th anniversary of World War II, this volume called End of Empire. And it was like a diary of 100 days leading up to the end of the war and just after all over Asia, just all the different things happening that were impacted by the war. About 80 researchers, brilliant. I mean, it was mad. We went totally bonkers, but it was great fun. These are excellent highlights in, indeed. And yeah. I think over the past weeks and months on Facebook, Nias has been highlighting some of the many titles that have been coming out from Nias Press over the past many decades. So that's a very good entry point for yeah. people who want to know more about this. But I, I think it's also fair to say that the publishing landscape has changed quite a bit during the many years that Nias Press has been around. I mean, I look at this from the outside, but it seems to have become much more difficult for small independent publishers maneuvering in a landscape where a few big actors with relatively deep pockets are taking up an increasing amount of space. What will be the future for Nia's Press when Nia's closes? And, and what will happen with this very large back catalogue that I think you mentioned counts hundreds of books? Well, first... Before I talk about the future, let me talk about those challenges very briefly, because it affects everybody in all sorts of areas. So if you imagine when I first started at NEAS, we were still producing books with word processors. They were being printed onto A4 sheets, shipped to England, where these ladies cut them out with scissors and glued them onto these huge plates to go and which were then filmed to go on, you know. All that's gone. You know, there's a thing nowadays called digital. There's a thing called the internet. The idea of printing hundreds and hundreds of books is no longer necessary. You can print one book. So there's a lot of things like that that have changed. That actually has meant you can have an insurgent press sneaking into the cracks of the publishing world and actually starting something new and interesting. That said, there are a lot of challenges. As you say, there are the big beasts with their deep pockets. So, you know, for instance, one of the big pressures nowadays by policymakers, and that is to have open access. And who gets those open access fees? Invariably, they seem to be ending up in the pockets of those big companies. The other thing that's seriously affected how we've done things is that over the past, what, 20-odd years, library budgets have collapsed. There's huge IT costs gone into libraries, and the journal costs have gone up, and the amount of money they got to buy books is just collapsing. So that obviously puts pressure on a small publisher or any publisher, which is why you're seeing more and more that's being done digitally. The final thing there that I won't say it's a nail in the coffin, but there's something that I would flag up as a concern coming into the future is an artificial intelligence. You know, a publisher I was talking to the other day said, oh, don't you realise that when we're giving our digital stuff to this company to distribute they're actually reading it all and teaching their robots the content they promise they're not going to use it blah blah but they're teaching their ai robots that information and in all those books millions of books so that sort of thing is a little bit scary but you ask what is the future of nears press the point is that Publishing, academic publishing, doesn't make money. That's the blunt history of it. So if you go and look at 99 out of 100 academic publishers, they survive because they have a home institution that subsidizes them. So even if you go and look at some of the big beasts like, or, you know, like in Asian studies, you'd say that like, for instance, University of Hawaii Press, that they have quite a bit of support from the university. So with Nias closing, we lose that support. For three years, we've tried to find a viable model to continue the press, but we failed. What do we do? I mean, there are two choices, basically. We either 
close down the press and all the books vanish or we find a new home for them. So that's what we're doing. We're working with a publisher we've worked with for decades who has similar ideas and behavior to us. And negotiations are still ongoing, but they're getting very close to an announcement being made. So by the time probably people are listening to this podcast, that decision will have been made. I'm sorry, this is not the way I want to end my publishing career, that this child and it's all the books that have come out of the press should go somewhere else, but that's just how it is. That's that's the world. Point is, we're working very hard to ensure that every book will still have a home. Every book will still be available to anybody who wants to read it. That is the goal. And we'll all keep our fingers crossed that this will indeed be the outcome of the ongoing negotiations. Yeah. Now, NIAS has, of course, always been a research institution as well, but I think it's fair to say that the actual level of research activities has gone up and down quite a bit over time. Duncan McCargo, you joined NIAS in 2019 as the new director and, uh, as we now know, the last of its kind. While you've been at NIAS, you've put in a lot of work and effort at reinvigorating NIAS also precisely as a research institution to once again make that also a central component of what NIAS was all about. Yes, that's right. So as I understood it, and of course it's long before my time, NIAS was originally founded to do two things. One was to do cutting-edge research about Asia, and the second was to support research about Asia across the Nordic region. And I did feel when I, I came along in 2019 that the latter agenda, the support work, had started to become very, very prominent in NIAS's activity, and we really needed to be doing more of our own research again. So that's obviously something that I place enormous emphasis on. And one of the, the problems, of course, was that the budget was cut repeatedly over a number of years. And the net result of that had been that whenever a researcher left or retired, they were not replaced. And in effect, the emphasis was being placed on the, the other activities, particularly on the press and the e-resources, which are obviously incredibly important. But what I wanted to do was to make NIAS again a place where people saw research going on. I was limited in what we could do because I couldn't appoint people on any kind of long-term basis. But during my time at NIAS, I was able to recruit no less than seven postdoc researchers, all of whom were fabulously well-qualified, really, really top people in their fields, just out of very good PhDs and extremely prolific and active. So bringing those people to NIAS I thought was incredibly important. And actually, it was incredibly important, not just for the quality of the research they did, which was showcased a lot, both internationally and around the region through the conferences and our events, and indeed, the Nordic Asia podcast, which we can also talk about at some length as a showcase for research in the Nordic region. But what was also important was the way in which having those researchers on board contributed to our other activity, because we had to move the super program online and turn it into a virtual program, which many of us, including myself, were highly skeptical about. But it was having that fantastic team of researchers who could engage with the non-visiting, visiting virtual super students in all these sessions. That was really, really important because the super students were not just giving a sort of informal brown bag lunch talk anymore. They were engaged in 13 different academic sessions, and they had these extremely energetic and research active postdocs to banter with and to put them through their paces when they gave their presentations, when they talked to them about a whole range of issues from academic career development, which was a topic close to the heart of those up-and-coming researchers themselves, to how to do presentations, how to promote yourself on social media, as well as the more conventional academic stuff. So it seemed to me that bringing the research back was a really important element of that period. Another thing that was crucial was 
my understanding was that we needed to be bringing in research grants and funds and to be credible in terms of bringing in funding, we needed a very active group of researchers in place. So these were things that I placed a lot of emphasis on. It was, I think, a change of direction at that time for NEAS. But to me, it all made a great deal of sense. And I believe that the fruits of what we were able to accomplish during what turned out to be a, a limited window of opportunity were pretty widely recognized both locally, regionally, and indeed internationally. I think I think that's a correct interpretation, at least it resonates with how I've seen NIAS emerging as a more lively also research environment in the last couple of years where I've been more involved than I have been in the past. But isn't it also a bit of a fine balance? I mean, once that you um, expand into research, there's always the risk that you go from being a Nordic collaborator to being a Nordic rival with some of your member institutions because you are, in a sense, on the search for the same kind of research funding that that other institutions are also, or, or is this just a sort of a, 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 a false problem or false dilemma that doesn't actually exist? Yeah, I never saw it that way. Perhaps I'm just naively optimistic, but I never really felt like Nias was competing for money directly with anybody else. It didn't seem to pan out in that kind of way to me. Look, I spent a lot of time, obviously, in other countries in the UK and latterly in the US. I mean, the fact that there's really great Asian studies at Columbia, where I was working for a number of years, and also at NYU, and also in Princeton, and also in a whole range of other universities in close geographical proximity on the east coast of the United States, doesn't really result in a diminution of resources and activity. Because the more you can raise the focus of what's inevitably a narrow and in many people's imaginations a marginalized field like Asian studies across universities in a region, the more collective power that enterprise has. So I never saw this as a zero-sum game where, you know, Nias is going to get this money and then other people won't have it. And I can't think of any instance where that really happened. For me, it was all about expanding the profile of Asian studies and making people see connections which were already there. Sometimes the connections were in our own institutions or in, in our own countries. But what NIAS was really all about from my perspective during those four years was in bringing those research connections to life. So I myself, for example, have a role in a collaborative grant, which is a Norwegian Research Council grant, which is led by one of your colleagues at the University of Oslo, Kenneth, and with, with other people involved. And that's an example of something that happened because we went around and had these intellectual conversations and were able to pull things together in that way. The Career Foundation funded a postdoc position for us for a number of years. And again, it was because of a pivotal role that Nias was able to play, not just in Copenhagen and in Denmark, but beyond the region that I think made us an attractive place to locate that. So I don't subscribe in short, to the zero-sum game theory. I think the more activity is going on and the more energy and dynamism is there, that's going to be good for, for everybody in a field like Asian studies. One major innovation during your time, which you also alluded to before, and it's that which our listeners are enjoying right now, namely the Nordic Asia podcast. In my view, I think this is an outstanding example of what we like to call Nordic added value. I mean, of, of what can happen when people join forces under a Nordic umbrella, so to speak. Um, Duncan, what's, uh, what's been the impact of this podcast? Yeah, I mean, I do think that, although it's certainly not the only thing that we did over the past four years at NIAS, in terms of having a resonance, not just in the Nordic region, but globally, and raising the profile of the work that people are doing I think this has to be the single most striking thing that came out of my time as director of NIAS. And it wasn't all my project. You were very involved in it. Our colleagues in Finland have been very involved in it, other colleagues in Sweden. But there's no doubt at all that NIAS was in this particular position, and it started during the first lockdown, to say, okay, we're going to have a problem now. We've got a marginalized field. We're all being locked up in our spare bedrooms. How are we going to continue to connect with each other, to do work on Asia, to feel that there's something still going on? 
Uh, and how are we going to reach beyond relatively small audiences, given that we're not going to be able to have physical events? So in a sense, the the challenge of the lockdowns created this opportunity for us. And, you know, we had been very proud, justly, of the NNC and the fantastic network of member institutions, which has varied in the region of 25 to 30 over the past few years. That's a fantastic network. But one of the things I was asking myself when I arrived at this is, are we optimizing the potential of this network? Are we really doing as much as we could with it? So it turned out that at the point when we could no longer easily visit each other in person, we could actually find a new way of tapping the potential of that network and really get the word out about what kind of work was going on relating to Asia across the region and broadcast that to the world. And once we took the decision to move the hosting of the Nordic Asia podcast after the first year onto the New Books Network, which is a US-based network, our downloads went through the roof, as you know very well, Kenneth, and you've been centrally involved in the whole project with us. More than 600,000 downloads of those podcasts in the first two years after we moved to the New Books Network. This is really now one of the most prominent, certainly academic podcasts on Asia out there. It's right up in the top three or four globally. And many, many people know about the Nordic region and what is going on here as a result of that podcast. So that's been an absolutely fantastic thing. And what it showed was that all the stuff we were saying for years about Nordic added value was true. Individual units may be small. We only have a handful of people working on Asia in the five different Nordic countries, and they may feel very marginal within their own institutions. And then their existence within the Nordic region may feel rather marginal to what's going on in the rest of the world, in Asia itself, and in the larger global universe of Asian studies. But when you connect all those people together through a podcast and you put something out every week, as we essentially have done for a number of years, you really, really raise the profile. So I think that was the most fantastic thing. And it was also, of course, great to have the partners in other countries, including course in Oslo, but also the postdocs that we had hired in Nias, many of whom played a very important role both as interviewees but also as interviewers. And as you know very well, but I'll just mention for the benefit of people listening who might not know, we've really got three kinds of podcasts. We are hosted on the New Books Network, and we do like to talk about new books that come out that are associated with people who are in the Nordic region or published by Nias Press. We also like to talk about topical events and developments, and we also like to focus on people's research and what projects they're working on, even if they haven't currently resulted in a book or are not likely to result in a book. So three kinds of podcasts broadly, and this has given us incredible opportunities and mileage. We're not limited to the book format, but we have taken this and through a very rigorous model of editing the podcast tightly, keeping them nice and short, making them very easy to listen to. We've established a standard. We've set a standard for how to do podcasting in the field of Asian studies, which is really something that can live on beyond NIRS itself. And that's something that I will be proud of to play the part in. We are approaching the end of this episode, which, uh, in contrast to most of the Nordic Asia podcast episodes, is uh, slightly on the long side. Yes. And um, as much as I hate to end on a depressing note, we, we do need to talk about the closure of NIAS, which is yeah. why we are doing this episode in the first place, and also to the circumstances that led to this outcome, despite the success with the podcast, despite success with external funding and with increasing uh, research activities at NIES. NIES is, as we know, now shutting down. Um, how did this come to pass? Yes. I mean, this is clearly, for me, a source of incredible personal disappointment. I went to NIES vowing that I would not be the last director of NIES, and that particular vow has not been one that I've been able to to keep, as it were, because things were outside my control. I mean, I do always have this conversation with people when they say, well, why would the the Nordic Council of Ministers, who latterly subcontracted the core funding to Norforce, why would they be pulling out money from an Asian Studies Institute when Asia is so important? And that question I always turn on its head, and I say, 
I think we do have to ask ourselves why the Nordic Council of Ministers has been funding an Asian Studies Institute for 55 years. Clearly, NIAS was the product of a particular set of circumstances. In the late 60s, there was a vision of the Nordic region as a region that needed to have its own regional academic research capacity. And that particular vision doesn't exist in the same way anymore, and certainly the financial basis for it doesn't exist in the same way anymore. So NIAS was very successful at keeping going and continuing to receive some core funding uh, long past the time when probably many of the actors involved in this particular Nordic project had lost enthusiasm for institutes like ours. So as director, I was in a, a curious situation where we had an alliance of institutes, including our colleagues in Iceland who work on volcanoes, our colleagues in Norway working on maritime law, and our colleagues in Sweden working on theoretical physics. And this was the most extraordinarily random situation. And clearly, if the Nordic House of Ministers was to start a bunch of institutes today, which they wouldn't, they would be probably a sustainability institute, an environmental institute, a human rights institute, a, a gender equality institute, things that these days are very, very closely associated with the core concerns and agenda of the region. So we tried to address as many of those concerns as we could, but ultimately, I think the writing was on the wall for a long time, and my, my predecessors been on the podcast, Jörn and, and Gaia, I think played a very important role in keeping our funding going for as long as they could. The really disappointing part, apart from the withdrawal of the core funding, is that we were not able to get the buy-in from our host institution, the University of Copenhagen, to keep supporting us. We had brought in a certain amount of money. I was always hoping that we could keep NIAS going, albeit at a, a reduced level, as the level of a, a small center, hiring people when we could with external funding, which we had successfully done. We could have kept some people around and things ticking over in the hope of then putting in further applications to, if not get back to the same core funding that we had before, to maintain a larger existence. That is something that we didn't get support from from the University of Copenhagen. I think that's going to be a core disappointment for many, many people. So we just have to look back on what NIAS has accomplished and what we can still salvage. I hope that the podcast will go on. I hope the press in some form will go on, that the e-resources in some form will go on. And perhaps most importantly, that the spirit of what NIAS represented will not die. Because I do believe that, and it's, perhaps it's funny for me to say this as someone who obviously hear from my accent. I don't come from the Nordic region. I came in as an, an outsider, but I became very invested emotionally in this project because I really believe that NIAS is, was, and always will be a wonderful thing. Duncan, I'm sure the, the spirit of, of NIAS will uh, live on for much, much longer. Duncan McCargo, Jörn Delman, Ingalil Blomqvist, Gaia Hilgesen, and Gerald Jackson, thank you all so much for coming to talk us through 55 years of NIAS history. And not least, thank you all for your efforts over many, many years to promote and energize Nordic research and collaboration on Asia. NIAS may soon be history, but the Nordic Asia podcast will still be around also in the future. So stay tuned for more episodes, also featuring Duncan McCargo. My name is Kenneth Bonelson, and thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.